Welcome back to Elements of a Garden, a podcast celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Theodore Payne Foundation Native Plant Garden Tour. I'm joined with Dr. Alex Hall, UCLA climate scientist, to dig deep into his garden, garden number six on the tour over in mid-Wilshire. And we're extrapolating out from his garden to broader issues within uh, the environment uh, of Los Angeles and the global environment. This episode is a really special one because it really hits on Alex's area of research. He's a climate scientist, as I mentioned, and today we're going to talk about air and the atmosphere. So Alex, thanks for joining us. When you think air, what comes to mind for you? It's uh, actually something that's not too related to my work, which is um, fragrances and scents and smells. I really love that element of a garden, and we're fortunate to have so many native plants that are fragrant. So I have a lot of plants that have fragrances, and I just love walking through the garden and being surprised by some air wafting through the garden and giving me a, a little dose of maybe a coyote mint or a Cleveland sage or um, some really wonderful fragrant plant. It's such a important and I think sometimes underappreciated element of a good garden is the way it smells. Yeah, and some, sometimes it's not even the fragrant plants. It, sometimes it just smells like the chaparral. It smells like you're on a hike. And they say that smell is the thing that's most connected to memory. And right. when I'm in my garden, and I have that smell of the chaparral, it really does make me feel like I'm in the wild. And I, and I think that's, and it connects me to the wild really profoundly. And I think that's got to be one of the most important functions of a native garden for the gardener is to connect with nature. Yeah. And in that very visceral way where it's like so sensory, it's coming in through the olfactory nerve and like lighting up part of the brain where memory and nostalgia are also right in that area. So it is this multi-sensory experience that we're lucky here in California, as you mentioned, because we do have such amazing smelling plants and much of the LA basin would have been a vegetation type known as coastal sage scrub, which is dominated by a couple of really fragrant plants, including California sagebrush, Artemisia californica, and, and other species. Which, I mean, that plant smells amazing. I think, I, yeah. is, it, is that cowboy cologne? Is they call it the cowboy hair? cologne, okay. yeah. It's it's a wonderful plant, easy to grow, easy to maintain. You can kind of do what you want with it. But I love that. So, so for you, air in the garden is smell. For me, there's another element of air in a garden, which is the wind, and how the wind kind of plays off the plants and, and seeing shadows dancing and... I think one of the elements of really beautiful design is to to really think all the kind of ramifications of what you're doing. So if you're putting grasses in a certain place, maybe they're cascading off of a wall where, where the sun is shining and you get that extra layer of light dancing through the wind. The other thing outside of, you know, the beauty of wind is the destructive nature of wind. I remember um, when I first moved to California, it was just on the heels of the 2012 windstorm that kind of ravaged uh, a bunch of places and, and being in the botanical garden world it was like this huge deal because it knocked down all these famous trees and specimens but wind is also implicated in a lot of other things that we're going to be talking about throughout this series i guess alex what actually is wind 
Well, at the most basic level, you know, we have big differences in temperature across the planet, and that creates big differences in pressure, and wind is blowing to even out those pressure differences, so blowing from high to low pressure, and that all is initiated by the sun. So, you know, the sun is just initiating this giant system of, of atmospheric circulation that is trying to even out all these pressure and temperature differences. So it's like one place trying to reach equilibrium with another place, and then that creates movement of air. And then the sun is perpetually disrupting that, you know, heating more in some places than others, um, creating more disequilibrium. And so then the winds are blowing to even that out. And it's just a constantly, you know, a constant generation force. And so obviously that can play out in, in very sort of acute targeted situations where you have like a big windstorm. But then there are also predictable seasonal wind patterns that can really impact uh, the environment, and, and particularly um, something that we'll be talking about in our next episode, which is fire. So how, how does wind um, implicate it in, in fire in Southern California? We have really distinct seasons in Southern California. I, when people say there are no seasons here, I, that drives me crazy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because, <laughs> um, you know, we've talked about the wet season and the rains that, that you know, typically begin late, around late November, you know, December. We also have something called the Santa Ana winds, which most people have heard of, and those are also very seasonal. They typically appear in September and October, you know, right before the wet season starts. And they come on the heels of the dry season, and they are characterized by really strong winds blowing from the desert to the ocean. And because the desert is so dry and the winds flow down slope, they're heated as they flow down slope and typically the winds are very hot and dry and they actually blow all winter you know there are there are Santa Ana winds wind events that happen in December January February um, and they're associated with this really beautiful um, summer-like weather that we get in Southern California in in the winter time yeah those, those nice midwinter days yes um, but if they're you know if coming before the beginning of the wet season then they're blowing across very dry landscapes and if there happens to be some kind of spark, um, either a person lighting a fire or there's a lightning event, and that is associated with those winds, then there could be a very large fire. And that's why Southern California has this naturally occurring fire as part of its ecological composition. And so that is a good uh, conversation to put a pin in for later, because we're going to be going deep into fire on our next episode. But the other aspect of the Santa Ana's and wind in general and even self-inflicted winds, such as sticking plants on the back of a pickup truck, that I always warn people about as a gardener is right. <laughs> wind does impact and affect plants, and it can like really desiccate the leaves quickly. So that's something to be aware of as a gardener and be thinking about. You know, if the wind is blowing steadily on a on a plant that has very tender leaves, you might want to you know protect it a little bit because um, not only will it potentially induce fire, but it's also it's going to impact the plants if it's if it's really hot and dry and, and blowing wind. I did a, a camping trip on Santa Rosa Island, which is a famously windy island yeah. in the channel, <laughs> one of the Channel Islands. And right along the coast where it is really windy, there are these little, tiny little toyons. They're like maybe three or four feet tall. Oh, yeah. Um, and they've been wind pruned. I love that mm -hmm. term. Like they've yeah. been actually, they've actually been shaped by the wind. If you go into the canyons there, there are toyons that are like these giant trees. Right. If they're sheltered from the wind. So, I mean, that... I thought was one of the most graphic illustrations of how wind can really shape um, the same plant in the same place. Yeah, totally. And like on the tops of mountains, you'll see these crazy stunted uh, trees that are that are just being 
as stocky and tough as possible to withstand those those wind conditions or like right on the coast sometimes like in the islands or even um, on the mainland you'll see these trees that are like bent in the direction of the wind and they're there there's these incredible natural bonsais that that have been pruned or shaped or formed by the wind it is a kind of an interesting force on the on the life of plants and I mean, some some trees, um, you know, as they're as they're developing, they need the wind to make their trunks stronger. You know, that's like a you know, if you stake right. up a tree too much and there's a lot of wind, um, you know, then it won't develop that that strong trunk. So it's it's. I mean, there's a plants are are really set up to deal with wind, um, at, at least if it's not too destructive. Yeah, and if you will permit me to leave California plants for a second and go to another what? <laughs> another place <laughs> near and dear to my heart, which is South African plants. One of the ecosystems there, the Feinbos, which is this beautiful kind of shrubland. Which is like the analog to the chaparral, right? In, yeah, in, in some Africa. ways, yeah. Um, it's so windy there that one of the big issues with trying to cultivate those plants outside of that environment is that it's not windy enough, and they, they need the wind to kind of be keeping them keeping the moisture wicked away and dry and they need the airflow. In general, airflow on plants is a really important thing. That's why you'll see greenhouses with fans set up. And this is a, an aspect of the environment that the plants know about and, and is important to their, uh, their well-being. So in cultivation, wind is this you know, important factor to, to being successful in growing plants. It's also a really important strategy for plants and their reproduction out in the environment where you have plants that are pollinated by the wind and plants that disperse their seeds through the wind. So it's this incredibly important element to plants and, and uh, to all and many natural systems. I think wind pollination is particularly important for oaks, isn't it? Oaks isn't it? and grasses, um, yeah. things like pine trees, also wind pollinated. And, and a lot of the, the really nasty pollens that cause um, allergies are coming from wind pollinated plants like pines. But I want to leave plants for a second to to hone in on your specialty as a climate scientist, um, um, because I think this fits really well under the banner of air or wind, um, which is obviously the atmosphere. What does it mean to be a climate scientist? What are you studying? I have been studying for quite a while the implications of a changing climate and changing because of an increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That's the result of fossil fuel burning. I've been looking at that, the implications of a changing climate um, for places like California and trying to understand, you know, if, if the world is warmer, if the storms are more intense, if the droughts are deeper, you know, what does that mean for a place like California? And, you know, as a scientist, obviously, we're trying to be quantitative about that. We're trying to be very clear about how large those changes are and what the uncertainties are associated with that. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, what I've, what I've been working on. So, yeah, I think um, as a non-scientist who's kind of been around the periphery of science throughout my career and, and had a lot of friends who are scientists, that precision and the way that the level that you have to go to publish something in a peer-reviewed journal is always pretty amazing. I know you've gone really deep and done a lot of peer-reviewed publications on the future of climate here in Los Angeles. I wonder if you could just kind of give a, a really high-level layman's review of what kind of predictions there are for, for what might happen here in uh, Los Angeles in the future with, with our climate. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that we've already had quite a bit of climate change in the past century or so, probably, you know, somewhere around a couple degrees Fahrenheit warming, wow. um, you know, since the beginning of the industrial era when we began to put fossil fuel emissions into the atmosphere. 
um, I think you know people probably know that on some level that, yeah. that we've already been seeing big impacts of a of a warmer world. We've seen increases in wildfire. Um, not I mean increases, putting it mildly. We've seen the initiation of what we might call a mega fire era in California wow. and other places, and we see water um, sustainability challenges emerging already. So I think you know climate change is very much here. If you know if we think about the future, even if we make a collective worldwide decision now to stop emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere still will be emitting (laughs) because it takes a while to transition our energy systems away from fossil fuels. And so there's a certain amount of climate change in the future, continued climate change that's baked in, so to speak. And of course, you know, it's not clear exactly whether we will decide very, very soon to stop emitting greenhouse gases. There are lots of places where that's just not happening. And so you know, we have to think about adaptation to um, continued climate change. And by the mid-century, you know, probably we'll see another couple degrees of warming, most likely. Um, And then there are all kinds of effects that are associated with that. I mentioned the increases in extreme precipitation when we have storms, but also deepening of drought. In California, it's loss of snowpack in our highest mountain areas, which is a critical water resource. And then um, there's also probably the continued presence of of megafire in the landscape, which is um, you know really really deep adaptation challenge. You know we we also have to talk about sea level rise. That's another piece of the the climate right. change um, puzzle. And um, yeah, so warming changes in in the water cycle, sea level rise. Those are the big impacts, and then things flow from that. Less predictability, more kind of extreme events. So. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary. I think we can, yeah. you know, it, it's not obviously not good news. And I do hope that we get our acts together, so to speak, our, and our governments and and our policy can reflect a much lower carbon future or, or a neutral or actually reducing carbon over time. I honestly hope we're going there. But one of the things that I think is happening in many different conversations, many different disciplines, is how are we going to adapt to climate change? And to bring it back to plants and horticulture and gardens, um, there's an argument that I hear pretty regularly, which is that if the climate is changing, why are you using native plants? Because the climate is going to change. And so so the plants that are native aren't going to be the ones to utilize anymore. I have a lot of uh, counter arguments <laughs> to, to say why I don't think that's the right way of looking at that. But I, I wonder, when you hear that, and you've done really granular studies of what is going to play out here in Los Angeles and in, in across Southern California. How do you think horticulture and the plant choices that we use moving forward in urban spaces in California should be thought of in the context of a changing climate? Well, I think, you know, first of all, we need plants that, um, that are water conserving. And we've talked already about how native plants are the best water conserving plants because of their preferences for the precipitation when it does fall. And then, you know, also think we want to think about habitat restoration. You know, climate change is not the only environmental challenge right now. It's habitat restoration is a big piece of the environmental challenge now too. And and native plants are the habitat restorers in Southern California or anywhere. (laughs) Um, And so I think those are, those are two powerful reasons on their own to plant natives but, you know, I think also we have to think again about these huge variations in climate across the landscape in Southern California. Um, the fact that, you know, there's 
often several degrees difference between a coastal and inland area on any one day. And that's actually a bigger temperature difference than the changes that we've already experienced or expect. Mm. So probably the plants that we have, and we see you know, the same species in these different landscapes, probably they're already adapted to these kinds of differences. And maybe there are small genetic differences within a species, maybe an oak species that's growing in both the Santa Monica Mountains and in some inland mountain area that's much hotter. Maybe there are small genetic differences between those two and they're like subspecies. Right. And maybe we should be thinking about planting the one that's adapted to a warmer climate <laughs> in the current climate, you know, to kind of adapt for the future better. But I think there's enough genetic variation in already in the native flora that is already adapted to the very large differences in climate that already exist in the landscape, that native plants will be quite resilient to these changes that we're anticipating. But, you know, it's something to be studied and thought about. Yeah, I think I think across the board, there's a, a need for more research. When we talk about like adaptation and um, how the plants have evolved to, to handle these conditions, as you talked about earlier in our water episode, there's always been considerable amount of variability within the climate here in California. Sometimes we get a really hot summer, sometimes it's not so hot, sometimes we get a ton of rain, and sometimes we have a drought year. So I think maybe there's some hope there as well that there already is some adaptation to variability baked into these plants and into their genetic heritage? Absolutely. I think Southern California is a land of extremes. It has been for millions of years, and the plants are adapted to that. They have experienced these dramatic changes, and that's in some ways what makes the flora so unique and special and diverse, is that there are so many different adaptations to these extreme variations. And I think we have to give thought to what to plant in a changed climate, but I think the native flora has that variability that we need to sample from to get the right plant palette for the future. And in addition, they restore habitat and they conserve water. Which are also as important. And I think you you made a good point about climate change can take center stage when you talk about the environment today. And, And there are other issues, habitat loss being a huge one, extinction being a huge one. I mean, I think of that as, you know, kind of the evil twin of climate change. I think habitat destruction and climate change are the two existential threats to planetary ecological health and maybe to our own welfare and maybe to our own existence. (laughs) Our own survival. Our own survival. So I see them as very connected. One One of the really satisfying things about native plants as a climate change adaptation solution is that they address our climate change challenges because they are water conserving. And I think water sustainability is an existential threat in California. But they also restore habitat. They do both. They address both of them. And that's what's so great about them. I also want to talk, go back to something you said earlier about climate change being scary because it definitely is, and it's something that I confront every day. My native garden has been a balm to that feeling of fear about the future. And, you know, it's the space that I can tend and I can see develop. I can bring life back into, literally have life in my garden. I think I've probably served billions of meals to (laughs) pollinators and butterflies and birds. And that there's something that's so soothing and deeply satisfying about that. And I think it addresses exactly the fear that we have about our future. So it's not only the right practical solution to climate change and habitat destruction, I think it's the right psychological solution for us. I forget the the terminology, but like ecological despair or climate despair and anxiety. Um, 
are real things. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you are interested in environmental topics and maybe have felt those feelings before. So I totally agree that proactive solutions are helpful. And this one is one that also happens to be fun and interesting and, um, and a great way to do something proactive that with your time that um, is, is good for the environment and, and good for your mental health and well-being as well. For each of our five episodes, we've asked a different member of the Theodore Payne Foundation staff to pick a plant that reminds them of that theme and describe it. My name is Ella Anderson, and I'm the assistant manager in the nursery at TPF. I really love the wind. Uh, when it's windy out, I get this hyper energy that feels kind of wild, and I love all the motion and sounds. A plant that really embodies the wind for me is a grass called Sporobolus aeroides, or Alkali sacaton. I love watching this grass in my garden leap and dance around when it's windy. It's a plant that seems as activated by the wind as I am. And the sound the blades make in the wind, like this, is so beautiful. When this grass blooms, it sends up these two foot tall lacy inflorescences that are the color of straw tinged with purple and pink. If you have a mass of it planted, these inflorescences wave and hang above the landscape, looking like an ethereal floating cloud. And the inflorescence itself is pyramid-shaped with radial branches that act like this feathery sail that really catches the wind, which is no accident because it relies on wind for pollination. Alkali sacaton is in a genus of grasses known for their deep and wide rooting system, which makes them really drought tolerant. It's a great grass for full sun, low water gardens, but it does well in part sun too, and can take regular water and even occasional flooding, so it thrives in many garden spaces. You can place it in a bioswale, for example. Being a warm season grass, it greens up in our warm months and then cures to a flaxen color in the fall and winter. In winter, you can cut this grass back to the ground if you'd like. If you do this, you can throw the cut grass in a corner of your garden because birds will use it as nesting material. And at any time, if you want to cut the flower stalks, they make really beautiful dried arrangements. When people are in the nursery considering grasses, I often hear them say, well, grasses don't really do much ecologically, but a lot of creatures depend on the resources of grasses and grasslands are a very threatened type of habitat in our state. Grasses like Alkali sacaton provide cover, which is really necessary for ground-dwelling birds like quail. The blades are foraged for nesting material. The seeds are eaten by insects. Their extensive root systems hold a lot of carbon as well as filter and capture water, and they're excellent at holding soils in place. Grasses in general are the host plant for the skipper butterfly family, and Alkali sacaton is the host of two skipper butterflies that are known of. Grasses do a lot. If you visit Theodore Payne, you can find a strip of Alkali sacaton planted behind our headquarters. I hope it'll be a windy day so that you can witness their dancing celebration of the wind. So if we can go back to this discussion of in a changing climate, what plants should we use? And, and of course, I believe it should be natives. And there's another uh, kind of element to that, is that 
in our urban spaces and in our kind of landscaped areas, we are caring for plants in ways that we're not in other parts uh, of the environment. So if you go out to the wildlands, no one takes care of anything. Nature's doing it all out there. But in our spaces, we, we water, we prune, we maintain. And right now, there's a lot of landscape that's under that regime of care. But it's none of it's thought of as ecologically valuable. In fact, it's the opposite. It's thought of as just human spaces. So I think another important argument to utilize natives in a changing climate is that we have the ability to maintain those landscapes. And they can perhaps even be refuge for biodiversity. If we can kind of reframe our perspective of what human spaces are, that, hey, these are places where we're, we live every day. We go outside, we see the spaces around us. So we can care for plants in ways that won't be able to happen in the places where we, where we aren't spending all of our time. So I wonder, does that thought resonate with you of urban spaces and, and our gardens becoming ecological refugia uh, in, a, in a changing climate, in a potential time of uh, biodiversity decline? Yeah, I love that idea. The traditional approach to conservation is to set aside wildlands and make sure that people don't ruin them. <laughs> and this kind of flips the script. It says, well, maybe the wildlands are vulnerable. Um, maybe this, the plant species and animal species are vulnerable because of climate change in wildlands. And I think there is evidence for that, especially as a result of these incredibly hot and destructive and intense fires. But instead of thinking of the wildlands as the thing to preserve, we are thinking about nurturing native plants in the spaces that we actually have more direct ability to tend to. And so I think that's, um, you know, I, I still think we need to conserve wildlands. Yeah, I, I, I'm not course. arguing against <laughs> that. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a kind of a deal all the above approach. We're doing conservation of wildlands to the extent that we can, but we're also cognizant of climate change and the fact that in our own landscapes that we tend more directly, we can do something to make sure that the local native plants thrive in this world that we're creating. I think that's a very hopeful way of thinking about it. And also, you know, the, the reality is that we have many, many people who work in the industry of producing plants, of gardening, of tending to landscapes. And if we have the kind of foresight and creativity to start to orient that more and more towards a true environmental system, we can have pretty major scale. And, and if you extrapolate that outside of Los Angeles, outside of California, across the world, it does provide a lot of kind of hope in terms of you know restoring and maintaining biodiversity. So there's a nice hopeful thought um, yeah, no, I, I, again, for me, gardening has been the thing that, native plant gardening has been the thing that has sustained me and has helped me maintain my, my commitments to understanding climate change impacts and engaging with municipal, state, federal government agencies to, you know, help them plan for the future. You know, it's kept me, it's kept me sane. I can really attest to the fact that it is it is my garden's given so much back to me, you know, in that sense. Yeah, that's that's beautiful, and um, the smells of sage and and all the other beautiful aromatic plants here contribute to that joy and and feeling of sanity. I'm sure. Absolutely. Yep. So thank you, Alex, for uh, discussing air and wind and the atmosphere with us. Um, this all leads in nicely to our next episode. Coming up next, we'll have. Fire, where we examine uh, fire and its effect on California native plants and on the environment here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm.